And before we read God's word, would you pray with me? Lord, and we know that Christ is full of grace and truth, and that your word is full of grace and truth. Lord, would you press these things on our hearts? Open us up to see your grace and truth so that we would be made patient and faithful followers of you. Would you guide us now by your spirit? We ask all of this humbly in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to read here these first 12 verses uh, out of Hebrews chapter 6. So Hebrews 6 will begin here in verse 1. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God and of instruction about washing, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment, and this we will do if God permits For it is impossible, in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, and have shared in the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come, and have then fallen away to restore them again to repentance, since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. For land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed and its end is to be burned. Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints as you still do. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness, to have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. This is God's word. Now, we have come here to one of the weightier passages in the book of Hebrews. It's probably even one of the weightier passages in the whole New Testament, if even the Bible. And when we set out on this journey through our book of Hebrews back in January, I knew that this text was coming. So this is not a surprise to me or to us. This is not a situation where we go, "Uh uh-oh, I didn't know that was in there. What do, we, what do we do with something like that? We 
know that the book of Hebrews undulates. It rises and falls like ocean waves, and, and so the author moves between wooing us and warning us. So this is a warning here, but this particular warning I have not been looking forward to. If we really set our ears to listen to this, if we really sit with this and let it sink in, this is a, di a disturbing text. The author says here that our, there are some who have been enlightened by God, who have shared in some sense in the Holy Spirit, who have tasted the goodness of the Word of God, and yet these fall away. They are headed for fire. Because it's as if they are crucifying Christ all over again. And hearing this just causes me to stop in my tracks. When I was in college, I attended a, a, a conference uh, of, it was in Colorado, all these college students from all over the country sort of convened in this big area. There were thousands of students, and this was some, a, a Christian group that we'd gathered for. So part of this conference, it was a week long, uh, was preaching. There was worship service, and I remember one year, there was a preacher there uh, who we all loved, just thought he was the coolest guy. He, he was faithful to God's word. He loved Jesus. He loved God. And, and I actually now, years later, remember very little about his sermons and his preaching, except he had a catchphrase, uh, which was, I'm coming to your neighborhood. And so I sometimes think of him. He was always coming to my neighborhood about something. Uh, but I do remember one thing he said to us. He said he would never preach out of Hebrews 6 or Hebrews 10. Now, to be fair to him, I'm not sure if he literally meant that, but that's at least what I remember about what he told us. And of course, my response was two things. First, to like flip in my Bible to Hebrews 6 and 10 to see what's there. But secondly, something about this felt wrong to make part of the Bible off limits to treat part of the Bible as something that's almost tat uh, taboo or, or redacted, that it's kind of blacked out. Sometimes we even treat the Bible that way by avoiding certain sections of it. And little did I know that as a, a young college student sitting there thinking that one day I'd be a journalist, <laughs> no, one day I'd actually become a vocational minister and stand here behind a pulpit preaching out of Hebrews chapter 6. And this is not because I am better than that conference preacher. It's not because I'm wiser or somehow stronger. This is just because here we are. This is the next section. We know the great, rich value of all of the book of Hebrews this is part of that. We know the great and rich value of all of the Bible, and this is part of it, so I'm going to preach it. I need to preach it. I want to preach this even. If we're going to be faithful to God's word, if we want him 
to transform us according to his will, even if in order to do that, he's going to roll in some dark clouds to accomplish that. Because we know that even though God loves us, and that's true, God's love is not all rainbows. In fact, the center of his word to us here is not a rainbow, but is an ear-splitting crack of thunder. This is a large text, so I want to focus our time and attention here on a particular part of it. In my Bible, the sentence begins in verse 4. For it is impossible, and then he gives a list of those he's describing things about them and and finishes it in verse 6, and have fallen away to restore them again to repentance. It is impossible for these, this group who has fallen away to be restored to repentance. And the thing that shakes the skies for me is that little word, impossible. In fact, at some point in the past, I don't remember when, I wrote in the margins of the Bible here the word, scary. A text like this is the kind of thing that might make us fidget in our seat might cause us to try to to explain it away or, or, or lead us to look for any sort of distraction, anything that will take my mind off it so I can think about something else. But listen, fight off those distractions here because we need to feel the rumble of this coming from the distance. We need to look out the window and see the thunderclouds coming. We need to really listen when the sirens are going off because the author of Hebrews here is blaring them as loud as he can. Listen, it is impossible to be restored if you've fallen away. The author of Hebrews is not the only one who preaches this way. Jesus does. In his Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew chapter uh, 5 through 7, Jesus begins this sermon, as it's recorded by Matthew here, by a rich, lovely section that we call the Beatitudes, the, the blessings. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are those who 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 are meek, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteous. Blessed are you, he says. These are like shining rainbows of hope. This is refreshment to a weary soul. And at the end, he says, so rejoice, be glad. If this is you, your reward is great, he says. And then immediately after, look what he says in Matthew chapter 5, verse 13. Jesus says this, you are the salt of the earth, But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. Crack goes the thunder. 
fact, he even ends his sermon with a similar flash of lightning. Chapter 7, verse 21, he says this, Not everyone, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? And then I'll declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. And then Jesus ends with a short parable about the two builders, one who built his house on rock and the other who built his house on sand. And then he ends. Jesus then leaves us in this sermon, hanging, dangling with a question. What is your house built on? When the winds and the rains come, will your house stand or will it fall? The author of Hebrews then is calling out to us, beware of that sand because there may be a point in which your house has sunk so far that it cannot come out of it. That it is impossible to be restored. In other words, we might as well just pack up and move on because there is nothing I or anyone can do for you do you hear the storm? The guiding question for us this morning then is this. What does the author mean when he says it is impossible for these to be restored? What does he mean when he says it's impossible to be restored. And before we proceed to try to answer that question from this text, I need to address two very important points. The first is this. This passage is not about whether or not a Christian can lose his or her salvation. This passage is not about whether or not a Christian can lose his or her salvation. There has been lots of ink spilled over that topic, especially using this text from Hebrews. But there are other places in the Bible that, that speak far more directly and clearly to this issue than this one. If you are interested in that question, or if you are troubled by that question, anxious, even worried, afraid about that, I would encourage you to go back and listen to the sermon that was around Hebrews chapter 3, verse 12, where he talks about uh, taking care lest you fall away. The sermon around Hebrews chapter 12, uh, in that section, I, I address that concern. Go back and listen to it. If this troubles you, I hope that it will, it will challenge you, but it will also comfort your heart. So if you're troubled, go there. 
the possibility or impossibility of loss of salvation for a Christian is worth talking about, but we're not going to talk about it now. Because if we digress to talk about the doctrine of assurance here, we will miss the author's point. And we will take the crack out of the thunder that he wants us to hear. So we need to keep it there. So there's one thing I need to address. The second thing I need to address before we move on to our question is this. God, because of the complete and perfect sacrifice of Jesus, God will always forgive the truly repentant person. God will always forgive the truly repentant person. Always, without exception. If a person comes to Jesus by faith, there is no sin outside of his mercy, not one. The Bible is very clear on this. The blood of Jesus is strong enough to wash clean even the sins of sexual immorality, sins of idolatry, adultery, the practice of homosexuality, thievery, greed, drunkenness, reviling, swindlers, and on and on it goes. Whatever it is that you think is so bad, he can forgive it, and he will forgive it if you come to Jesus by faith and in repentance. Even the most heinous, vile sin, which was to murder the very Son of God. You remember what Jesus says on the cross in Luke's Gospel? Father, forgive them. They have no idea what they're doing. Even for this great sin, Christ extends forgiveness. Now, at this point, some will say, wait a minute, Nathan. Isn't there somewhere in the Bible something called the unforgivable sin? Isn't there something called the sin that leads to death? This is worth talking about, but we won't talk about it now. What I have said is still true. If a person is truly repentant of his sin, God will always forgive, always. We know what John has said in 1 John chapter 1 is true. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sin in repentance, if we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness, not part, all. Now, this does not mean that every person is forgiven. There are some who still deceive themselves. There are some who think they are good enough. There are some who say, Lord, Lord, didn't we do all of this in your name? But they have actually fallen away. And they will perish forever. Even in their case, God has not failed. Let me be here then as clear as I'm able to be. 
the issue addressed here in Hebrews chapter 6 is not whether or not it is possible for God to forgive. The issue is whether or not it is possible for a person to repent and therefore find, repent, or find forgiveness and restoration in God. You can see it in the text. He says, verse 4 is the beginning of it. It's impossible for all of these things. Then verse 6, for those who have then fallen away, then it's impossible, look, to restore them again to repentance. It's impossible to restore them to repentance. There are some then who are unable to repent and therefore they become worthless, cursed, and in the end, burned. Hmm. Now, we've asked the question, what does the author mean when he says it's impossible for them to be restored to repentance? And to try to answer this and wrestle with this, I want to just make here from this text a few observations about this impossibility and then give us a few implications based on those observations. The first observation from this section is this. It seems that there is a point of no return that happens in this life seems there's a point of no return that happens in this life. We know death is a point of no return. At the point of death, a person is either in Jesus or not. There's no crossover. There's no middle space. There's no purgatory in the Bible. We're either in Christ or not at death. But even now, there may be a point at which we cannot repent The author here does not tell us where the line is. It's not like he says, you know, there, there are these certain sins that if you do, you're fine, but if you cross over into this, nor does he say, if you do it X number of times, then you've crossed over in, in, into un, unrepentance. No, no, that's not the point. He just says there is a point of no return in which uh, you are hardened. This is a real point. The example that the author will give later in the book of Hebrews in chapter 12, he draws all the way back from the book of Genesis when he talks about the unrepentance of Esau. So you'll remember Esau is the twin brother of Jacob, and he's the eldest, which means Esau is supposed to be given the family blessing. And Esau had devalued that blessing so much that he traded his blessing away for a bowl of soup. So the author of Hebrews, in commenting on this, says in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 16, let me pick up in the middle of the sentence here, like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal, verse 17, for you know that afterward, when he, Esau, desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, 
though he sought it with tears. Esau found no chance. It was impossible at this point to repent even though he sought it, now the, the it there is not the repentance, he's not singing repentance, but the blessing, even though he sought the blessing with tears, but even though he sought that, both blessing and repentance was now out of his reach. And as a result, Esau sought it with tears. He cried buckets over this, but this crying is not true Repentance. Crying may mean we're just trying to escape the consequence. Trying to regain the blessing. This is not humbleness before the Lord for our sin. Grieving him for how much we've offended him. No, this is selfishness. To put oneself first. And then to get stuck there. The implication for this is that if you can repent now, do it. If you can repent now, do it. Run to Jesus. Confess your sin to to, to the one who is faithful and just to forgive sins. Humble yourself before the Lord and he will lift you up. Don't put it off. Don't delay it so that you can do what you want. In the meantime, do not wait a moment because you may be crossing over a line. We know that that deathbed confessions, conversions even at the last moments of life are real. They happen. The evidence of that is the thief on the cross in his last minutes says, uh, Lord, remember me in your kingdom. And Jesus says, I'll see you there. But we should not count on those last moments. Not only because we never know when our last moments will be, but because if we refuse to repent over the course of a lifetime, we may have hardened ourselves so that we have fallen so far that we cannot reach repentance in the end. I need a breath here. The second observation is that this situation that the author of Hebrews talks about here, this situation is happening inside of the church. It's easy to pick on culture, people outside. Oh, those pagans, those heathens, they do such and such. The author of Hebrews is talking now to people whose rear end is in a pew the ones who have been exposed to the light of Jesus, the ones who have experienced, in a sense, the power of the Holy Spirit, ones who have tasted the goodness of the Word of God. They've got the blessing of the Lord raining down on their heads with hearing the Word of God, the prayers of God, with the people of God. But instead of producing crops, these people bear thistles and thorns. And because of that, they are worse off than those who never knew Jesus at all. Peter says something similar in a much sharper way. 
in 2 Peter chapter 2. He says this, in, starting in verse 20. For if, after they have escaped the defilements of the word, of the world through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, and they're entangled in them again and are overcome. The last state has become worse for them than the first. It would have been better for them never to have known the way of righteousness than after knowing it to turn back from the holy commandment delivered to them. What the true proverb says has happened to them. The dog returns to its own vomit, and the sow, after washing herself, returns to wallow in the mire. This sort of thing is rampant in American evangelicalism. There are hordes of people who grew up in church and come to church every Sunday and read a little Bible, give a little offering, only sin the little sins, pray the little prayers, eat the little bread, and then wallow in their own mire. They have no real love for Jesus. Jesus impacts their life in no way, and there is no desire for repentance. These people think they are following Jesus, but they are asking, but they're actually asking Jesus to follow them. That is dangerous, and they are very near to being cursed. The implication here is that we should not assume we are earning points or favor with God just by being here. If the act of coming before God in worship does not show you your own sin in a way that leads you to repentance, you are better off staying home to watch baseball. Finally, the third observation here is that the author of Hebrews, given everything that he has just said, is confident that this is not the case for his hearers. The author of Hebrews is confident that this is not the case for his hearers. You see it in verse 9. You can hear the tone change. Though we speak in this way, he says, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. That God is working his repentance in these people. That it's not only well within their reach, it's within them. Now, the author's no fool. He knows that his people, even himself, he knows his people are still sinners. In fact, he's just rebuked his listeners for being childish, for being dull hearers of the word. He knows that his listeners are like the prodigal son, that they've fallen into sin, 
but they haven't fallen away from repentance. And so they're restored to the Father. That they're like King David, that though they've fallen into sin, they've not fallen away from repentance and so can be restored to God. Or that they're like the apostles, the disciples who followed Jesus. That when they struck the shepherd, the sheep scattered so that his followers denied him and abandoned him. But even though they'd fallen into sin, they had not fallen away from repentance, and so they were restored to Jesus. In spite of their sin here, the author of Hebrews has hope for these people. Because he sees in them a true love of God and a true service for God's people. They're showing by their lives evidence that they know the servant love of Jesus who is working repentance in them. And so he has confidence for them. He says, we might have full assurance of hope until the end. And I'm glad to say that I think that's true for us too as a church. There's a rainbow on this thundercloud. There is hope for us. Now, this leads us then to a final question, which is, if the author is so sure of these better things for his hearers, if he talks so much about things that belong to salvation, why then does he give them all this talk about the impossibility of repentance for those who have fallen away? What's the author's purpose in doing this? What is his goal? We know he's not just setting up a haunted house to trick them. Right, that there are things that are supposed to just uh, uh, jump out, something to spook us and, and scare us so that we'll walk around with these tiny little steps and be paranoid that something is going to strike us at every little corner. That's not the goal. We know his warning is true. This thunderclap is real. But he doesn't just say it because it's true. His goal is to increase their perseverance. His goal is to make them faithful in the end. Because even though today is Palm Sunday, not every day is Palm Sunday. On Palm Sunday, Jesus was riding into Jerusalem, and the crowds saw the Son of David, the King of Kings, and they cried out together with one voice, Hosanna, save us. This is the triumphal entry after all. And it is easy to join in when everyone's waving palm branches, when everyone's crying out together, Hosanna, save us. But there will come a day when Christ will lead us through the valley of the shadow of death. When we don't take up palm branches to follow him, when we take up our cross to follow him, what will we do then?
repentance here then is working to strengthen us for that day. Because a repentance that comes from God is not just saying, I was wrong. Repentance that comes from God actually says, Lord, you are right. Your ways are right, and when there's a contradiction between your ways and mine, your way is always right. Your ways are better than mine. So, Lord, lead me in the way everlasting. Would you pray with me? Lord, uh, we know that your ways are good and always good. So I pray that you would work a good work in us in response to this. Lord, help us to taste your goodness in a way that would lead us to repentance. Produce in us patient faithfulness that would glorify your name and that would give us hope. We trust you. And we give you praise in Jesus' name. Amen.